You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. It's great to see all of you here with us this morning. As we continue in our series through the book of Acts, we find ourselves today in Acts chapter 11 uh, with perhaps my favorite church in the entire New Testament. The church at Antioch is what we'll be looking at today in Acts 11 and also a little bit in Acts 13. Now, as we get to this place today, we'll do a little background in just a moment, but uh, my, my grandfather always told me uh, in life that uh, there was one thing that he treasured that he also hated, uh, and that was his boat that he bought. Um, he always told me in life that the two happiest days in the life of a bon- boat owner are the days you buy it and the days that you sell it, <laughs> right? And there's a reason why that boat did not get passed down to me, because he enjoyed the latter half of that as well uh, in selling it. Now, I say that because, uh, d- does anyone own a boat in here or know someone who owns a boat? There we go. Okay, if all of you will go out to the back table, fill out a Connect card, we'd love to have coffee with you this week, because, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, I want to be your friend, right? I love, I love boats. I love being out on the water, but, but unfortunately, I can trust in the Holy Spirit to lead them to step out in faith. And what God providentially does is he actually uses this persecution to push his people onward in faith to new places and to new territories. And so through the, the martyrdom of Stephen, what you have is the church is scattering in different directions. You have parts of the church scattering west into North Africa, and you have parts of the church scattering north into modern-day Lebanon, or the text says today, Phoenicia. And in these areas, we see something remarkable happening. The church is going to new places and to new people that had never gone before. It's following the roadmap that Jesus gave his disciples in Acts chapter 1. And if you were tracking with us at the beginning of this, you know in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples before he ascends into heaven that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that roadmap has been followed providentially by the church. And we saw that they were uh, his witnesses in Jerusalem through Pentecost, and the church began to grow and get bigger and bigger in Jerusalem. And then they were sent out to Judea and Samaria, and the church continued to grow. But all the while, they were speaking to primarily Jewish people. And then we get now here to Antioch, to the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time, to this massive, godless city of people filled with it who do not know the Hebrew Bible, and who do not know who God is. And here we see the catalyst for how God is going to continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, which we're all today a part of. And so our main idea today, if you're thinking about this text, is we think about how can we as a church follow in the footsteps of Antioch to not just maintain, not just to be in maintenance mode, but as a church be on mission. The main point is this today, that God uses his church to change the world. him Because God uses his church. He chooses to use his church, just like he did with Antioch, to get the gospel to the nations, to get the truth of who Jesus is to those who do not yet know him. And so we're going to follow this, this model that this church lays out for us today. And our outline is simply this. There's going to be three different focuses we're going to see from this church. We're going to see that this church had an outward focus. They also had an inward focus. And then finally, they had a forward focus. As we look at these three focuses, I, I pray that this will help us think about how can we have that wind in ourselves as a church? How can we can continue to move forward 
into the new things that God would have for us as a church. Let's go ahead and dive into this, the text today with point number one. The church is outward focused. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is about 300 miles uh, north of Jerusalem, so pretty far travel at this point. Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Hellenists is another word for Greeks, for for non-Jewish Greeks. Preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, if you notice in verse 19, as we said, the church has been scattered in these two areas. They're, they're kind of forced into these areas because of persecution, right? They didn't choose to go to these areas. They were kind of exiled into these areas. And as they're going along their way to places like Phoenicia, Cyprus, and then now in Antioch, they're primarily only speaking to Jews, they're witnessing, they're, they're, they're speaking about the Messiah to those who perhaps would understand who the Messiah was. But then notice a change in verse 20. There are these men who begin to speak to the Greeks. And the result of them going and speaking to the Greeks in Antioch is it says a great number believed. Now this reminds us that the gospel has power to transform individual lives. The gospel has power to transform individual lives. You see, if we're going to go back to Acts chapter 2, we'd see at Pentecost this great number of people believed. And it was this refreshing movement of God's Spirit in the church of Jerusalem where people were growing and and daily more and more were being added to the church and the church continued to grow. But since that time, we haven't seen something that big of a people movement until we get to Antioch. And here we see people believing in great numbers. In fact, twice it's emphasized in this text that there are a great number of people who are believing. Now, the distinction between speaking to Jews and speaking to Greeks is not just an ethnic thing. We'll get there in just a moment. But I want you to know something else. They kind of, they represent types of people as well. You see, for this moment on in the church, the, the Christian missionary movement up until this point was primarily speaking to religious people. Right? It makes sense. You know, if, 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 if this is a movement that is birthed out of, of Judaism, as you think about the Messiah, it would make sense to go to people who would understand who the Messiah was, Right? who would understand the Hebrew scriptures, people who, who would understand who God is, and just speak to them. And you think that would be the types of people, those were the people who would be the early converts. And that's what happened, right? And, and even as we looked at chapter 8, 9, and 10, we saw that the gospel was going to the Samaritans. Well, even the Samaritans, even though they, they, they had some uh, differing views on the Hebrew scriptures, even they believed in the Hebrew Bible, right? And then we have this Ethiopian eunuch, and and even though he's Ethiopian, he's seeking God through the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And and then we had Cornelius last week, as Ben spoke, and even Cornelius is is seen as a, although he's a a Greek, he is a God-fearing Greek, right? You see, up in this point, it seems as if the gospel was primarily going to places that were characterized by religious people, people who would have that type of background. But here, the gospel then transitions to the Greeks, And the Greeks here, they don't just represent the Greek people, they represent those who are non-religious, those who are far from God, those who do not know the Hebrew Bible, those who do not know the, the awaiting Messiah, those who would have no background for that context. And what we see here is something pretty incredible, that the gospel is going forth for the first time to those who are far from God, from those who are far removed from Jewish faith. And what's shocking here 
is that these people seem to be more open to the gospel than the religious ones. What's shocking here is a great number of people begin to believe who were not from a Jewish background. You see, oftentimes when we think about cities like Washington, D.C., we naturally think statistically there are less people who believe in God uh, in D.C. There are less people who would characterize as being religious than, say, like the suburbs of Fairfax County, right? Um, Statistically speaking, that's true. And oftentimes we think of big cities like Antioch itself, which is this godless city, this immoral city, the city that doesn't really have a lot of religious traction. And we think that's the place where people are most cynical. That's the place where people are going to be hardest to reach. They're going to be hardened to the gospel. It's going to be hard to break that kind of soil, right? But what we find here is that that does not hinder the power of the gospel to transform a life. Right? The gospel is for both those who are near and far those who are religious and those who are irreligious, those who grew up around faith and those who have never heard of the God of the Bible. The gospel has the power to transform individual lives no matter of where their position is. That's why in Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul writes, and he writes in chapter 1, he's speaking primarily to Greeks, to Gentiles, right, to who these Hellenist people would be. And he says, and to kind of summarize, he says, look, they, they don't know God. They know God, but, but they don't know God because they've given over to the passions of their flesh. They're, they're living out in these passions. They've rejected God because of that. And because of that, they're lost and they're in need of God's grace. And you think, well, yeah, that's true, Paul. We get that. But then in chapter two, he immediately then directs his attention to the Jews. He says, hey, guess what? Because of your morality, because that you know God's law, that doesn't save you. That's not salvation. And because of that, you're in need of God's grace too. And what we find here is that the gospel can transform the lives of both the religious and the irreligious, both who grew up in a context where they were around faith and those who have never heard the name of Jesus before. And if we think, well, Washington, D.C., it's just like Antioch, right? It's this hardened place of the gospel. Then are we ourselves trying to limit how God can move in power to change a life? Are we seeking it out? Are we looking for it? Are we believing that God can do the same work he did here in Antioch, where he worked in a powerful way to transform lives? Now, notice who God uses to do this. It's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's these ordinary, unnamed men from Cyprus and Cyrene. Don't you just love that, right? Like, there's no plaque given to them. Like, there's no, like, uh, down in history, we have no clue who their names are. We'll never know who their names are. But yet, through them, God literally began to change a city, right? These men are unnamed. They're ordinary. They're unannounced. And yet, they took off with the message of Jesus, spreading it to people who have never heard it before. And because of that, the world has literally been changed. It's a great reminding for us that God uses unnamed Christians to make a difference in the kingdom. He uses people who may not have significance or popularity, who may not have a following. They had no plan. They had no program. They had no budget. They just had passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he worked mightily through them. You say, I think this is something we need to recover as a church, because in a culture we celebrate celebrities. As a culture, we celebrate those who have influence. As a culture, we celebrate those who are most popular And in those contexts, we give significance based off of someone's popularity. We give significance based off of someone's influence on a culture. But we see here in Antioch that God works through the unsung heroes of the church. He works through people who are unnamed. He works through people who literally are nobodies who witness to their neighbors. And in doing so, a work of the gospel begins to spread throughout the city. 
You see, the reason why we see so many great number of people coming to believe at Antioch is not because of their ability, it's not because of their marketability, it's not because of their skills, it's because they were faithful witnesses and the hand of the Lord, it says, was upon them. That God's sovereignty, sovereignly blessed their witness. That Jesus was the hero of their message. That Jesus was the reason for why they were preaching this message. And that Jesus was the power that was supplied to bless their witness. See, Jesus is building his church in this godless city of Antioch through ordinary people. And likewise, here in Washington, D.C., we see a lot of parallels to Antioch, actually. And in Washington, D.C., look, we're not trying to manipulate the hand of God for, for, for work here in the city, right? We're not trying to manipulate the hand of God in doing amazing things in our own communities. We should follow in the footsteps of these unnamed believers to step out of faith, to trust that the Lord is with us, to see that he can transform individual lives. Now, there's another layer to this, right? As their outward focuses are thinking about seeing the gospel go forth and transforming lives and people are coming to believe, there's another layer to this, and that is the gospel also has the power to transform relationships. You see, Antioch was built uh, by this guy named Seleucus, and he was one of Alexander the Great's generals. And when he built this, this city, he built a, a fortress. He built this massive wall around the city, and he knew because of the place of this city, because of its central location in Syria, uh, that there would be a lot of multi-ethnic, multi-racial involvement in the city. So you have the city with this great fortress, but you also have it near different ethnic groups. You have the Romans, you have the Greeks, it's close to Israel, so you have the Jews. Uh, it's close because of the, the, the spice trade, so you have people from India, from China, you have the Persians coming in. It's close to Africa, so you have North Africans coming in. And essentially, you have this mix of people in this great city. And in fact, history tells us that there was at least 18 different divided quarters, ethnic quarters in the city. It's not only did Seclutus build this wall around the city, he also built walls to partition the city. He built walls to partition the city to keep ethnic groups from mixing with one another. Now, why was that? Why did he do that? Well, because it's natural, right? One subculture typically believes they're superior to another. So if you have a city where you have this many, there could be infighting that could happen right? You go to the marketplace one day and someone steps on your robe or, or they spill something on you, etc. Then before you know it, you have infighting between these two groups of people. And so to try to prevent that, they literally partition the wall into these different quarters. And what is so amazing what's going on here is when the gospel reaches Antioch, people are literally going over the walls to worship together. Isn't that amazing? For the first time, there is something that can actually draw people together. What once separated everyone it is no more. And we find that it's not just the Greeks, because if we were to go to Acts, uh, if we go over to, to Acts 13, we would see that they, they begin to name different leaders in Acts 13, 1 through 3. And, and these are leaders of the church at Antioch. And if you'll notice in those leaders, now I'm not going to, I'm just going to paraphrase for you, in those leaders' names, there are three different continents represented and four different distinct racial groups represented. So in this church at Antioch, you have God moving in such a way that he is literally breaking down the barriers and the dividing walls of the city, where the gospel unifies, where Jesus Christ brings people together. Now, this is important for us, and this is the reason why Barnabas was sent, because the gospel is moving in this direction where there are people who are not Jews coming to believe in masses, and Barnabas is sent to confirm this, to see what's happening, and what is the city doing? Well, look at verse 26. 
It says the city has to come up with a new name for them. The city doesn't know how to characterize this movement anymore. And so it says in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, why were they called Christians? Because for the first time, they weren't calling themselves that, by the way. Others were calling them that. Because for the first time, they had to think of a new identity for this movement. They had to think of a new way to characterize how Jews and non-Jews could be coming together and worshiping the same God. They can no longer see this as just a Jewish religion, right? They can no longer see this as a partitioned religion of a particular ethnic group anymore. They had to come up with a new identity, a new way of describing this. And this is important for us because as we've said in the past, and uh, as, as Ben even said last week, oftentimes we believe that religion is just a function or result of a culture, right? It just, it's an outgrowth of a particular culture. That's when you say you're Muslim because you're from the Middle East, or you say you're Roman Catholic because you're Italian, or you say you're Baptist because you're from the South, right? Like these are ways to, it's true, y'all know it's true, right? Uh, these are ways we characterize, right? We see that religion oftentimes is an outgrowth of culture. But here that's not the case anymore. You can't just say that Christianity is uh, a Jewish religion because they worship the Jewish Messiah, just like the Ephesians would worship the uh, Ephesian God, or the Greeks would worship the Greek gods, because for the first time, something is happening that people from different backgrounds are experiencing and worshiping the same God. They're becoming friends. They're worshiping together. They're becoming one unified body. And the world around them is, is forced to think, how can we characterize these people? How can we identify these people? Oh, we'll call them Christians because they're following Jesus Christ, the Lord. Now, this is important because as a church, we often say at King's Church that we want to be a church so united in Jesus Christ that when people see us coming together from, from how different we are, from the different cultures, from the different races, from the different hobbies, from the different accents we have, from the different neighborhoods we live in, from the different political parties we support, that they can see that there is something so beautiful that unifies us. There's something that can transform relationships, the only thing under heaven that can actually bring people together, and that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But notice, this isn't just the result of a good church. This is also the witness of a good church. You see, as the text continues, it doesn't just say that, well, people became believers, and then we see this beautiful group of people that are from diverse backgrounds, they're worshiping together, and this is the result of when we witness and, and, and bring people into the church. No, when the church came together, people began to believe in Jesus. Because our witness to the world, when we come together as a unique group of people like this, a diverse group of people, we are actually demonstrating to the world around us that Jesus is real. We're showing people that there is a God who can unite. There's a God who can bring people together. There's a God worthy of worship. It's not just a social construct. It's not just a cultural construct. It is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, the Savior of all. Now, I think the challenge for us, the application for us here is simply this. If we want to be that type of church that has this outward focus, a church that is both seeing the gospel transform individual lives and also the gospel transform relationships like we're seeing in Antioch, then we need to be a church that loves others more than we fear them. We need to be a church that is compelled by love rather than fear. You see, when, when we know what God has done for us, when we trust in Jesus, he gives us sufficient power strength, and courage. He comes alongside of us in life. He walks with us in life. He gives us the courage to step across that fear boundary and to speak the name of Jesus to someone. Now, I recognize fear is something that we deal with, right? 
is pretty immense in life. And you may be thinking right now, okay, my boss, she's, she's, not, a, she's not a Christian, and, and how, how do I have the courage to share with her? Where you think you're a neighbor, and you think, well, my neighbor who I have to ride that elevator with every single day, and we have that awkward 30-second elevator ride, and I've never talked to him. Like, how do I share with him? How do I get over that fear? You see, Jesus comes, and he tells us in, in his word that we don't have to live in that fear. He's brought peace to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry anymore of what others think of us because true love, the love of Christ compels us to say that it is loving to tell people, it is loving to show to people, it is loving to display to people what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so are we compelled by love or fear? These men of Cyprus and Cyrene, they were compelled by love to be sacrificial, to be caring, to be gentle, to be bold. And a result of their boldness and their love was not perfect speech. It was not winning arguments It was not trying to prove that they were better than anyone. The result of their love was that people saw Jesus. That's precisely why we exist as a church, to be outward focused, to see people come to know Jesus. Now, secondly, the church is also inward focused. Let's continue in verse 22. As this movement of God is happening, as people are coming to know Jesus in in masses, as the gospel is going to people that had never gone before, we see this happen in verse 22. The report came back to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And the Antioch disciples were first called Christians. Now, we have this diverse group of people now, newly converts, people who don't have much background in the Hebrew Scriptures, people who who don't know much about the Messiah Jesus. And they're in this church together, and now we see the focus shifts to building them up. The focus is inward-focused. It's about building the church up. And so they send for this man, Barnabas. And Barnabas comes from Jerusalem. And Barnabas comes primarily from the church's perspective to confirm, to validate what's happening. To come and check on and make sure, hey, what is going on? We're hearing crazy stories of people who are not Jewish coming to faith in Christ. Like, what is going on? He comes, and he not only confirms that, but he puts wind in their cells. He, he comes, and he applauds their enthusiasm. He comes and he encourages them. He exhorts them to continue on. Now, Barnabas was definitely the guy for this because the Bible literally says his nickname is Son of Encouragement. Right? This man is gifted at the ministry of encouragement. And so what does he do here? It says he exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, if a church is going to be mission-minded, if a church is going to desire to see change in its city, then we have to work towards focusing inward to build one another up. You see, this word exhort, this word encouragement here is is a word that sometimes we struggle with, right? When we think of encouragement, sometimes we think about just kind of affirming or being nice to someone, but it has a deeper meaning than that. It's not just about being nice. It's not just about being loving. It's also about being truthful. A ministry of encouragement is speaking both truth and love into someone's life. A ministry of encouragement, what Barnabas is doing here, he's calling them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He is speaking both truth and love 
into their life. Now, notice something else that's interesting about this. When Barnabas comes, he comes to encourage them. He doesn't come to evangelize. He doesn't come to, to, to preach. He doesn't come to get on the streets and, and proclaim news like perhaps Peter would do. But what is the result of his encouragement here? The result of his encouragement, it says, a great number of people were added to the Lord. So we see something here. That not only does God use us to go and to teach and proclaim truth to people, he also uses us to build one another up in such a way that it, it kind of, uh, it kind of uh, mobilizes people. It hyper, uh, kind of hyperdrives people to then go out and share the good news of Jesus. And so Barnabas' ministry of encouragement here, in a sense, is hyperdriving everything. It's putting everything into motion in such a way that more people are coming to know Jesus Christ. Now, this is important because if we're honest with ourselves— we need someone like Barnabas in our lives, don't we? We all need someone who's pouring and investing in us because we're all insecure, if we're honest, right? I, I'm insecure. The, the best-dressed people in D.C. who seem so self-assured of themselves are insecure. We all deal with it, right? We all deal with it in such a way that we justify ourselves. We make excuses for ourselves, don't we? We're really not that bad. Or we say, well, I, I know I need things to work on in life, but at least I'm not like that person, right? Or if you, knew, if you just knew my background, if you knew what I've gone through, you would realize I'm the way I am, right? We're constantly trying to justify our actions. We're, we're good. We're experts at self-justification. And what we don't need is someone who comes into our lives and just affirms what we want to hear, right? Because that doesn't change anything. And we also don't need someone to come in our lives and just give us quick advice without loving us, without caring for us, without being kind towards us, without comforting us. What we need is someone who can speak truth and love into our very souls. And that's the type of person Barnabas was. He comes and he speaks truth and love in such a way that helps people understand who Jesus is and continue in the steadfast purpose that he has for them. We have to say in our, 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 our uh, vision statement here that we want to see lives transformed and we want to see purpose in our lives, purpose in our living, to see us grow up in the faith together. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's a description of Barnabas here I think that's really important. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. That's not a mistake. That's not just a filler line. That's not just uh, uh, the writer Luke just saying, well, he's a Christian. No, Luke is telling us here, this is how we have a ministry of encouragement, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, we all struggle in one way or the other off the, the balance beam, right? Because of our personality, some of us tend to be more of, of kind of the affirming uh, encouragers, right? Uh, we, we're very loving, but sometimes we lack truth in the way in which we love. I mean, I, I know I'm, I kind of tend that way sometimes. Or some of us are, are more of like very like to the point truth tellers direct, right? But there's not much love there. there. There's not much ability to comfort. There's not much ability to be kind. And in our personalities, we tend to lean one way or the other. And what we need is God's spirit within us to balance us out. To help us see how we can speak both truth and love into the lives of one another. 
And that's precisely what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. If you looked at it, John 14, he says this in verse 26, but the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Another way of saying this is the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to say, hey, look what Jesus has done for you. Don't forget who he is. When, when you're trying to, to fall into that category of self-justification and you're insecure, d- be reminded of what Christ has done for you. When you fall into the temptation of wanting to criticize or, or feel like the world is criticizing you, remind yourself that Jesus has already approved you. Right? There's no fear. There's no condemnation. When you realize that you've lost things of this world, power, approval, comfort, or control, that the Holy Spirit reminds us Jesus has given you all that you need in him, right? It's there to center us. It's there to ground us. And if we want to be good disciple makers of one another, if we want to be good encouragers of one another, we have to be filled with the Spirit because it's being filled with the Spirit that balances us out. It's being filled with the Spirit that allows us then to be encouraged by Jesus and go and encourage others. Now, I think the challenge for us here is simply this, that we should be about serving others rather than being served. We see this as something that characterizes the church at Antioch, particularly this man Barnabas. His whole attitude towards Antioch is one of service. Barnabas comes in as an outsider, and everyone is drawn to this man. Think about it. It's a lot of new believers, and they see this man Barnabas, and they can easily put him on a pedestal. And Barnabas, if he wanted to, he could easily start at a really great church, and he could have been the lead guy. He could have taken the big salary. He could have been the front man. That's not what he does. Because his old attitude is one of service. And in fact, the text continues and Barnabas says, hey, I actually know a better teacher than me. I actually know someone who's better fit to do this job than me. And I'm going to go out of my way to Tarsus to bring him to you. And he goes and he gets Paul because he realizes Paul is the one, he is the man for the job who can instruct this church, who can teach this church, who can lead this church. You see, Barnabas' whole attitude was one of service. He came to the city to serve. He came to the city to partner with others. He came to the city to be on a team. He came to the city to give away what he could do for someone else. And that's precisely how we live. If we want to be a church that is inward focused on encouraging and building one another up, we have to have that mindset of how can we serve others rather than be served? How can we use the gifts that God has given us to invest in the lives of others? That does require sacrifice. It requires investment. But like Paul and like Barnabas, when we see ourselves as part of the same team on the same mission, the end result is that Jesus builds his church, that many turn to the Lord. And so we see that this church, as it's outward-focused, people are coming to know Jesus. As it turns inward and focuses on this ministry of encouragement and teaching and instructing and building one another up, the same effect is happening. People are coming to know Jesus. And then we see, point number three, the church is also forward-focused. Look at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined each one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the, uh, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And so this event that that is being talked about here actually occurs in chapter 21. Uh, There was a great famine in AD 45, and and it affected the whole Roman Empire. 
there was a, a food shortage, there was wheat shortage, uh, and, and this prophet Agabus comes, and sometimes when we see prophets come like this, they do foretell something that's going to happen. And so he gives this prophetic word of something that is going to happen, and, and the church discerns that this is something that they should believe in, and, and, and there's a reason that there's the discernment there, right? We shouldn't just believe what everybody says when they say they're a prophet, okay? Uh, but this guy Agabus, he comes, and he, he tells them about this famine, and the disciples determine in this moment, each according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now, this is unthinkable that they would do this. It, it really is unthinkable, because in this point in history, you would not just give money to strangers you never met before. Like, that would be an unthinkable thing to do. You may give money to a family member who's in need. You may give money to gain political power, right? That still happens. Uh, but, but, here, <laughs> but here, you would never see someone give money to someone they've never met before in an area that they're not from to complete strangers. And yet this church is selfless. This church is generous. This church sacrifices. But the reason why I say that it's forward-focused is it's much bigger than just that. It's much bigger. This is pointing to something much bigger than just their selfless generosity to the church in Jerusalem. They are for the first time seeing themselves as part of a bigger mission. They're seeing themselves as a bigger family. You see, these people in Jerusalem who they'd never met before were not strangers to them. These were part of their family. These were brothers and sisters. These were people who were worshiping the same God that they loved. These are people who believed in the same Jesus Christ who transformed their lives. And in doing so, their generosity flows from an understanding that this is bigger than them. That the giving, the outpouring of their generosity and sacrifice to help bring aid relief to this church is bigger than them. And likewise, if we are a church that's on mission mode and not maintenance mode, we have to realize that it's much bigger than King's Church. The sacrifices we make, the generosity that we have, the things that we do, it's bigger than what's happening here. We are part of a movement of God across the world where he is bringing people to himself. He is drawing people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And the people that we pray for oftentimes who are around the world that we may never meet are our brothers. They are our sisters. They are our family. Now notice there's something else that happens here in chapter 13. It's not just that they're generous with their finances, but they're also generous with their very lives. In chapter 13, it, it reminds us that as they were coming together in prayer and fasting, they choose to send their best. They send out Barnabas and Paul on missionary journey to other cities in the Roman Empire. You see, they weren't just generous with their money. They were forward-facing and forward-focused in, the, in the knowing that they were sending out their best to continue the work of God. They were sending out their best in obedience for the good of others. And Jesus Christ himself loves and builds up the church that thinks beyond themselves, that focuses forward on how to get the gospel to others, not only in our city, but also in our world. So I think the challenge for us as we think about this is simply this, that we should go where God calls us, not where we're most comfortable. See, Barnabas, once again, is a great lesson for us here. I would assume Barnabas was not comfortable in Antioch. It's not his home. This is not where he probably saw himself in five to ten years, right? But Barnabas was one of the few who were not scattered when persecution came. He stayed in Jerusalem. He was not forced to leave. He was not forced to exile. 
but Barnabas chose to come to Antioch. And as he was sent, he chose to stay there. He chose to invest in the lives of the people at Antioch. He chose to plant his life there to help others know Jesus. It wasn't the most comfortable decision for him, but it was where God was using him. In the same way, I would encourage us to think of that this morning, that God often uses people not where they live most comfortably, but where they're trusting him. That's what God says to Abraham in the Old Testament. He says, uh, to paraphrase, I want to use you, Abraham, and through your offspring, the world will change. And Abraham's like, okay, where did I get started? He says, go to a land that you don't know. Go, go to a place you don't know, and there is where it begins. And oftentimes God calls us, and, and sometimes he uses things that are out of our control to bring us to places that he wants us, but oftentimes we have the ability to choose that. We have the ability to choose where we can go and where we can plant our lives. And the encouragement here from Barnabas is that as he decides to go to Antioch and stay in Antioch, he realizes that's where he is most useful to the, to the, to the ministry and to the mission of God. It was the most comfortable place for him. It was where God would use him. And I recognize, for many of you, D.C. is not the most comfortable place. <laughs> I recognize that in a city like D.C., there are a lot of things that we would so desire, like a boat, right? We just can't have. But oftentimes, God calls us to places just like D.C., not because it's comfortable, but because he wants us to be here. He wants to use us. We need more Christians in cities like D.C., just like they needed more Christians in cities like Antioch. We need more people who would say, yes, my studio apartment gets smaller by the minute. Yes, the street parking is bad. Yes, the schools aren't good. Yes, it smells bad on the streets. But even with all those challenges, God can use me. And perhaps this is where he wants me to be. And perhaps this is where he wants me to plant my life here through a church like King's Church to see the gospel go forth. Maybe that's not you. Maybe D.C. is not where you need to be, but perhaps it is. My encouragement for you is to trust that the Lord calls us to places, not where we're most comfortable, but we, we can be more useful. And he wants to use us today. So as we come to the Lord's table today, we're reminded of this passage that the good news of Jesus Christ is that he has died the death that we so deserved, and he has risen, conquering death. And that truth, that message still has power today to influence and change lives. And so let's be a church that is forward-focused, let's be a church that is inward-focused, and let's be a church that is looking outward-focused to see people come to Jesus, to sacrifice for others, to love others, to speak truth and love in the lives of others. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.